hello and welcome to episode 29 of what we're listening to. Almost 30. Yikes. Almost 30. Uh, my name is Josh. I am one of your hosts. And with me, as always, is my good friend and art rock apologist, Asher. How are you, sir? <laughs> yeah, I could go for the apologetics of art rock. Yeah. As some I don't love, but you know, you know, most of it. Uh, I'm pretty good, man. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little woozy. I've had my first uh, of hopefully two COVID injections, so I'm kind of nice. Uh, yeah, so I'm a little out of yeah. it at the moment. I've heard they hit a little hard. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll see. It could get worse. Could get better. Um, yep. Now I do have a quiz for you, and I think mm-hmm. this will either be impossible or very easy. I'm not quite sure. Okay. Cool. Um, so the, uh, uh, to reveal a little behind the curtain, I give Asher a clash album this episode. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the members of the legendary clash band is a fellow by the name of Mick Jones. He's the guitarist and sometimes singer, um, when Joe Stormer doesn't do the uh, lead vocals. And, mm-hmm. uh, he's known for being quite a fan of pop music in fact it drew a bit of a rift in the band when they were getting super popular he wanted to make more popular things and the band wanted to do more punk things and like kind of reject the popularity that they've been getting and so when they broke up mick jones has had a long career of collaborating with people making popular music so right of uh he has collaborated with two bands that we have reviewed on this show. Can you guess one of them? Uh, gorillas. Okay, correct. It was very easy. That's what I suspected. Good. No, they've collaborated with a lot of people. Yes. He collaborated. He's with the Avalanches. He was actually on the album we did last time. And, uh, okay. Uh, he toured with the gorillas for the plastic beach uh, tour. So I've actually had the opportunity of seeing him and the bass player both play with uh, the Gorillas Live, which is very wonderful. Oh wow! Yeah, you didn't let me guess the second one. You gave it away. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Point to me. Point to you. <laughs> it, the quiz is either going to be that, or it's going to be the um, the guy who bought a bunch of uh, hair from Kurt Cobain this week. But you know. Oh, I didn't hear about that one. Okay. That's gross. <laughs> the guy has a hair collection of famous people. And he Ooh. bought nine strands of Kurt Cobain's hair at, a, at an auction this week. Okay. Mm. <laughs> uh, point to you. Uh, do you have any catch-ups, sir? Oh, just firstly, um, as listeners might have seen, we uh, tweeted out that we are moving to a three-week schedule yeah uh this is partly due to me just wanting to have a little bit more time to digest records um but also i figure that when you listen to this podcast you are getting the cumulative listening experience of two different people which is a lot to digest in two weeks as well so maybe i'll just use that as an excuse to also (laughs) say that's why we're moving to three weeks but um yeah we're going to be releasing the podcast every three weeks and we'll release the playlist a week before the episode comes out as usual. So, yeah, just if you're wondering uh, why it's not fortnightly, it is now tri-weekly. So, yeah, hope you enjoy that. Just thought yeah. I'd have a little PSA in there. Yeah, which also, um, my my only piece of ketchup is that it has given me some time to do uh, some writing like I used to. So there mm-hmm. may be occasional articles on the uh, 
on the website, things that, you know, miscellaneous reviews and that kind of stuff that I have time for. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, you can go to our website and there's a new page called Writings. <laughs> I could think of a better Which will name be predominantly it. Josh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I, I have a bit of follow-up though. Yeah, go for it. Um, so... Uh, my main bit of follow-up, this is kind of like me following up my God Speed You Black Emperor review a few weeks back. Um, I've been listening to a lot of their stuff in the past while and just revisiting their work because um, there was this podcast that came out on the subreddit called A People's History of God Speed You Black Emperor. Um, which was quite interesting. It was three people kind of reflecting on um, what we chatted about a little bit to do with Godspeed Use um, kind of work in kind of protesting and how their music, uh, you you were reflecting that it wasn't as kind of inspiring to rebel against the government as their paraphernalia suggests kind yeah. of thing. Um, interestingly, the podcast, the three people in the podcast had a similar sort of reflection that it was quite, their music is like a, a quiet hope um, in the midst of a lot of chaos and sadness. And so, um, but it does seem to, have, I mean, people can take any music and let it fuel whatever political thing they want to kind of <laughs> riot against. Very um, true, very true. But it seems like Godspeed You, their members are quite involved in the Montreal um, sort of Quebec um, seen to do with a lot of like anarchist stuff. I think I don't know a lot about this, but, um, it's an interesting listen if you're looking for like kind of contextual information for God's BG's music. Mm. Um, I found it very informative. And as a result, I re-listened to their, one of their, um, most kind of not really understood records, Yankee UXO, which, um, was the fir- the last album before they went on hiatus? Uh, they went on hiatus like immediately after it dropped. It's um it's a very different record um, produced by still Steve Albini um, who did Nirvana I believe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it it's a very different album from the other ones, and it's like very melodic in terms of the guitar parts, less like droney, and um, some even like kind of orchestral chromatic parts and stuff like that. It's very, very long though. Like there are sections just go on for ages and ages without not a lot, without much changing. And so I, yeah, I had a bit of work to do for the past couple of weeks (laughs) and I've been um, just listening to this record a bunch of times over and I've come to appreciate it a lot more than I did when I first heard it. It's still not like high up there in my favorites of theirs, but it's definitely... um, Definitely an interesting one. Um, and yeah, I appreciate for what it is. Like, I think it's, I think it has something new to offer um, from the other albums that they do. And as I was listening back through their catalog, I was reflecting on how different a lot of their releases are. And I sent you um, their EP, which uh, is, is a thin veil for a very long. A couple of songs. Yes. Um, the Slow Riot from New Zero Canada. Did you end up listening to a bit of that? I listened to a bit of it. It's been a while. I need to actually go through it again. Sorry. That's fine. I, I just wondered because I was like, oh, this is an example of like my peak 
um, Godspeed you, Black Emperor. Okay. Like, the stuff that I really like. Um, no, no pressure. I was just like, this is kind of the thing I was really thinking of. And so they do, they've always done field recordings and vox pop stuff really well and incorporating it into their music. So mm. it's a very sad release, but it's also very interesting. So they're just two that I recommend if you want to go deeper into Godspeed you. <laughs> there you go. That's all my follow up. It's a bit of a bit of a hidden review excuse there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> all right. Should we go on to the reviews? Yeah, let's do it. So I have been listening to a band that I mentioned a few episodes back called Squid. They're a UK um, post-punk kind <laughs> of like, out, yeah, I don't know how to describe them in some ways. Um, outfit from the UK and kind of came on the scene in a similar time to Black Country New Road. And also, in my mind, they're in a similar vein of spoken word, long form, experimental, post punky sorts of sounds. Um, and you've been enjoying this record too, Josh. So feel free to interject yeah, it. Any absolutely. Moment. Yeah. I, there's a number of bands coming out of UK at the same time, which is kind of where they're lumped together. Um, these yeah. guys, Squid, Black Country New Road, and Black Midi are all kind of, I don't know, I don't, hmm. they're, they don't make the same kind of music, but they're adjacent to each other, which is why they kind of get lumped in together, I think, though. Yeah, I would say yeah. the Squid album is very different from the Black Country New Road release that came out a little while ago. Yeah, and for me, I prefer it more. I really like what Squid are doing in terms of a lot of their experimental stuff. And I might get into that in a moment. Yeah. Um, I did have to laugh. I sent you that meme of, um, you know, Andy from Toy Story dropping um, <laughs> Black Country New Road. I don't want to play with you anymore. And he's holding the Squid album. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so this, this album is called Bright Green Field. And as I was reading last night, this album is named after a, a short story by a woman named Anna Kavan, who's a surrealist... Um, writer okay. and actually there's a couple of her books which in inspire this album and we might talk about the themes a little bit later so off the bat squid are like um think spoken word and i've referred it to like uh, the b52's like love shack kind of like that spoken dramatical uh, dramatic sort of poetry on top of really kind of intense jams with synthesizers and trumpet and and like guitar parts like all these little small guitar parts and bass lines it's it's really like amazing yeah like off the bat gsk is the kind of the opener there's like a little track that begins it but gsk um is one of my favorite songs on the album and it kind of really hit me after the like you get in it's like this jam sort of thing and there's these synth chords, but then they kind of hit it and there's like chromatic trumpet lines with these synthesizer stabs and his like almost screaming vocals. And I'm like, I'm really going to enjoy this record. Yeah. I, <laughs> um, the trumpets on GSK are so clever because it's a song about, um, like, how do I describe it? A commute. Like, it's like, a commute, isn't it? Yeah, it's like having commuting while kind of panicking about stuff. And then the trumpets are in sync with the lyric, I'm speeding along, speeding along. 
and they kind of mm. fade like the Doppler effect. So the trumpets act like, oh, you know, cars man, passing cool. you by. Yeah. It's really clever. Yeah. I was reading that he, um, the lead singer drummer, which is amazing to watch. Um, oh, yeah. I watched a bit of their live um, performance on Instagram and uh, it, it's phenomenal to watch him. Like my wife was like, how does someone do that? I'm like, uh, I mean, like his parts aren't insanely complicated on the drums, but no. it's still very talented. Like he's, he's kind of managed to do something really, really groovy with his, his body and then kind of like almost rap spoken word stuff on top. So anyway, the GSK, yeah, is about a commute and he was reflecting upon Brexit and like looking at the um, GlaxoKline building, which is a pharmaceutical company in the UK. So yeah. That's what the GSK is. Yeah. Um, so after that, you then move into, is it Narrator? Um, mm. Which which is uh, obviously phenomenal. Um, although, like, I, I've, I've played this a few times and my daughter's been around and I, I often skip the ending because it <laughs> kind of freaks her out a little bit. It, yeah. it's <laughs> um, There are songs that, like, have builds in them and then there's songs like Narrator where it gets to a point where you're like, I don't know where they're going to build to. And it just turns into like chaos and screaming for like yeah. a good two and a half minutes. You know, like I, like it builds to the end of the world, basically. It's crazy. Yeah. And this is where the Anna Cavan story, she, so she wrote a story called A Bright Green Field. And it's a surrealist story about grass that the narrator can't escape wherever she goes, threatening to envelop humanity in a great green grave. And um, there's so another book by her is called Ice or something. And it's um, I'm quoting here from it's like it was a book I've the first book I've ever read where the narrator is incredibly unreliable. Whatever the narrator says, you don't know whether it's true or not. And it creates a fun way of reading. So you mm. fill in the blanks of how you see them instead of the author doing that for you. So I didn't realize how deep some of the lyrics were in this album. And uh, that's kind of cool. Anyway. Um, anyway, I'm not going to do total track by track, but these are some of the ones I loved. Boy Races is a really cool, but half the song is like crazy synth jam sort of like you know fifth um moog synthesizer sounds yeah. and stuff like that it was it was like yeah it kind of it kind of killed the pace a bit but it was also very interesting um uh paddling which was one of the singles is is great i like the way it's call and response between one of the guitarists singing this melody and then the drummer speaking it in this like crazy tone. And, um, but paddling always reminds me of that old man from the Simpsons. You know? <laughs> that, that's a paddling. It's not worth that. I was expecting that to go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. But anyway, I just had it in my mind. Um, documentary filmmaker. Um, apparently this is about a, a documentary made on an anorexia ward. Um, I, yeah, I've really struggled to like make head or tail of some of these lyrics without their help. So, um, you know, the eggs are always cheaper the day after Easter. Um, but then it gets really angry and like crazy in that song. So I, I really like documentary filmmaker. That's the um, one that begins with the brass, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Now, um, listeners, when you listen to 2010, please try and tell me that's not Paranoid Android <laughs> because it feels like it even has like some of the high guitar parts. Did you? Did you? Yeah, and we yeah. talked briefly about this. I. It's very difficult to make a song in 7-4 in a minor key mm. and have it not sound like Paranoid Android is what I would say. Um, Even the bass line is kind of chromatic and it feels yeah. a little bit like the crazy riff. I Yeah, so I, I find a lots of pieces of Radiohead actually all over this album. Um, not like mm. in big chunks, uh, yeah. but you have like, uh, especially from the keyboardist and one of the guitarists, they had just little, little pieces all over the place. Um, yeah. Including the instrumental half of like boy racers and the flyover are kind of like kid a to me in some ways. They're kind of these right, yeah. more um, atmospheric pieces in the middle of this kind of chaotic album. Hmm. And then um, some of the themes a little bit too, like the, like the kind of like tech isolationism is a bit uh, thematic yeah. radiohead, I would say. Is that pamphlets, you reckon? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about pamphlets because that's not one that's grabbed me. Really? It's definitely my favorite on the album. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, but it I think I think I prefer some of the others. But you I go. think I think it's the most what's the word? Um musically consistent with itself. <laughs> Maybe that's maybe that's why I like Boring. it. Yeah, it um of like a, an eight minute song, which there are a couple of in this album. It's mm. it's the one that doesn't shift the most from itself, uh, which I kind right. of enjoy. So it's more of like a kind of a fun jam, um, where you get kind of less of the weird like eighties vocal extremism. Um, but yeah, I I'm amazed. Yeah, this guy's got to be careful about keeping his voice going, I think, if he's going to keep yelling like this. Uh, I, I'm less concerned about him than I am about um, idols. I just feel like this is kind of drama. It's not... Some of it, yeah, is a bit intense. But oh, I don't know. They're on tour at the moment, so... All these people screaming know. for vocals. You got to be careful with your... You got you to damage oh, yeah, your vocal yeah. cords. Yeah, you got to be careful. So, like... I wrote something down earlier and I was kind of like, I feel like maybe this, I reckon this is an excellent album and it's going to be high on my list of top fives at the end of the year. Yeah. But I wonder whether they'll find their groove in album number two. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because I feel like at certain points we, we kind of drop the momentum a bit too much and like Peel Street and Global Groove kind of leave me a bit cold. Like global groove is too slow in in my mind, but um, I didn't write the song, you know. But it just kind of <laughs> peters off a little bit in the second half of the album, and I, you know, songs like GSK and Narrator and Twenty Ten and and you know Paddlin, they they all, I mean Paddlin a bit, but there's just a lot of really great material. I wonder if that by the time they get to album number two and they've kind of worked together a lot more there'll be a really kind of overall consistency. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious because this is obviously a first album and it's a good one. There's a lot of uh, mm. interesting ideas in here. But like yeah, if really they, good. like how would they work tackling like a th- more thematically conceptual record together? 
Mm. And that could be like that could be really interesting. I think so. We'll I guess we'll find out. That's the yeah. Well, the, a lot of it was sorry. That's just start of a career, right? And so they kind of get some place to grow. Yeah, I mean, it's a great start. They've been doing some great singles as well. So you know, yeah. if you have, I mean, listeners might have already listened to House Plants, but check that one out too because it's uh, it's pretty good. A friend of mine reckon that could have been on the album too. Mm. Just thematically works. Yeah. So anyway, that's Bright Green Field by Squid. I have really enjoyed this one. So yeah, <laughs> check it out. Do you want to start chatting about what you've been listening to? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I've been going through the uh, most recent and fourth album from uh, Vancouver artist Aiden Knight. Actually, he's from Victoria. Oh, he's from Vancouver. He's from the oh, album. Right, yeah. Um, cool. So he's a Canadian singer-songwriter that I've had a ear on for quite a while, actually. But for some reason, I hadn't actually gotten to this album in particular because it was released last December. Um, we were a bit busy back right. then. Um, yeah, I I don't know what to make of Aiden Knight sometimes because often I find myself warming up to his records once I listen to them. And after going through them a few times, they actually become some of my favorites, but very sneakily. And... I don't really realize that um, a number of his songs are in my top 25 most played of all time on my iTunes. And I didn't really think that they were, um, but they hmm. just kind of snuck up there. So um, I guess I would consider myself a fan of Mr. Knight. Um, and uh, I mean this in the most complimentary way possible, but a number of occasions he has reminded me of old Coldplay. Um, yeah, nice. And you and I are both very much Coldplay yeah. uh, apologists, at least old Coldplay apologists, where um, very simple melodies can be applied to devastating effect if you do it well. And I think he does that. Yeah. Um, His yeah. melodies on this album are beautiful. Yeah. And I think it's pretty consistent. So this is uh, the most produced of his records and um, one of the most band active there's more electric guitar there's more drums um, there's more extra things in the background than usual and some more uh, upbeat songs than before um, mm-hmm. like Lala and uh, Vene Vida Vici uh, those are more uh, out there than his older albums would be um, Okay. So it's kind of a more of an interesting mix to go through because it's usually more downplayed. But yeah, I think this album is consistently excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I remember you saying he was Canadian. I didn't know he was from uh from BC. Um, but obviously we've both talked about how his drums are very Andy Shelf, kind of that dead feel, and that immediately drew me in on um uh, Ju- someone in the garden, Julie in the garden. Yeah, the uh, yeah. It, it's a bit unfair, I think, but also it's immediately recognizable that the drum production is very, very similar, like really mm. deadened and tight sounding. Oh, I love that sound, and yeah. it, it really matches his vocal and things. I mean, you mentioned the guitar harmonies too; they're a real standout on this album, like. <laughs> 
they it, it it's very uh is it Brian May from Queen? Yeah, yeah, um, at times. It feels it feels very like that. And I kind of love that on top of folk. Um and Veni Vidi Vici uh has it's goes on and on and on that like progression is done pre- predominantly by those harmonies mm. the guitars and it's it's kind of like not really overdriven and it's very dry it's kind of a really interesting combo yeah yeah the I, melody, and the melodies on those guitar parts are just beautiful yeah i think he uh has a very creative way of uh drawing songs out he has a song on his previous album um, called What Light Never Goes Dim. And mm. uh, I think that song is beautiful, but the ending of it especially has kind of like the, the variation on, on the main theme um, drawn out to a new way, but, but keeping it all together. And I think he has a real talent mm. for doing that, I think. Yeah. Um, That's cool. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think... I'll probably just keep listening to this over and over again, slowly in the background, and it, it too will creep into my one of my favorites. But um, mm. I think this is really well put together. It's well produced. It's well written, um, and it's got some you know some great slow burns and some more upbeat songs that are uh, a little out there for him, which is good. He's like expanding his repertoire, but it's mm. I don't know. I don't know why he's not more famous in Canada, to be honest, or around the world. But he's uh. He's one of the more interesting Canadian music makers at the moment. He's very good. Uh, yeah, I, I wish him all the best because I really enjoyed this album. <laughs> mm. Yeah, Hayden Knight. So yeah, give him a listen. Last episode, we spun the spinner and this week's theme was classics. So that's why Josh gave me The Clash. And uh, do you want to start with that? Yeah, sure. Um, I I have been wanting to give this album to Asher for a little bit. So this is the third album by the legendary UK band uh, London Calling. Um, This album, I would claim, is probably ultra famous. Um, Mm. You know, it's in the top tens of lots of, like, greatest albums of all time awards from magazines. it's, you know, some people claim it's the best album of the decade for when it came out. It, um, I, which is the eighties. It only just made it into the eighties. Yeah. Uh, this album changed the way that I thought punk music could work. And I think for the better, um, Mm. and I think a lot of people fall into the category of having heard about this album, but have never Mm. listened to this album. Um, and I think if they did, they would be very surprised by it. Um, because, uh, thematically, uh, it's very consistent in like, it's kind of semi-rebellious, socially, uh, aware lyrics, but musically Mm. it is all over the place. And And I think that was exactly what I had as my reaction. Yeah. Okay. So go go for it. (laughs) Well, because... Yeah, when you're like, oh, Clash, classic punk band. I'm like, okay, <laughs> cool. I'm picturing like really raw recordings, you know, um, like ass, you know, but like yeah, older, yeah, yeah. you know, really rough and stuff. But then when I listen to it, I'm like, my goodness, this is really <laughs> poppy. Like, 
And it's funny you're talking about, um, is it Mick Gordon? Mick Jones. Um, Mitch jo- Mick Jones, you know, kind of vying for the pop sound. Mm. I can see that because London Calling is a great track. Like first off the bat, I had this in my head for weeks. <laughs> um, but I love how they dig the Beatles right there. Like phony yeah. Beatlemania. Like they're kind of having a go at uh, them. And the- apparently they were billed as the only band you should care about or something like this when they were first touring around or something. There's a lot of tongue in cheek of this album. Like even the famous album cover with the guy smashing the guitar and the lettering. Yeah. Yeah. Those are a mockery of uh, Elvis records. Um, oh, okay. So there's a lot of like elbowing and kind of uh, making fun of people from the get go in this record. Yeah. So there are, there are so many tracks on this album. The, the remastered version on, Spotify has 40 tracks no, no, and no, I no. was like, this has to be a bit too many. It's the 19 I've been listening to. Um, I, I sent Josh a text yesterday. I was like, were there a lot of Jamaican immigrants in the UK at this time? Yeah. And he said, yes, because this album is so influenced by like, as you were saying, kind of like reggae scar feels and I was not expecting that. I was expecting much more kind of like simple distortion and that sort of thing. Mm. Because Jimmy Jazz is like kind of Buddy Holly style, but like also with these other Jamaican influences. Um, Rudy Can't Fail is also very Rasta. Spanish Bombs is one of my favorites. Um, obviously, it's quite political, I gather, um, yeah, in terms War. of lyrics. But then it's also softer. Like the song is such a um, such a catchy, poppy sort of sound. Um, and I love the progression, like the minor four and this sort of thing. It's it's a beautiful song, and and kind of interestingly a bit more Beatles esque. Like <laughs> not totally, but it's funny how they were just kind of digging at the Beatles, but then sound a little bit like them anyway. Um, uh, just having a look. So lost in the supermarket feels very English, yeah. beautiful chorus, great sound. Um, interestingly, I, I feel like Green Day got some of their sound from like, uh, I've got here Clampdown, like feels like Green Day could have written this, um, which shows just how much they're probably influenced by bands like The Clash. Yeah. Um, some of the songs get a little too cheesy, like Wrong and Boys, um, Lovers Rock. Train in Vain is lovely and the card sheet is great. A little bit cheesy, but like that can be forgiven because this is the 80s and sometimes <laughs> subtlety is, is not the strong point. Yeah. But uh, this is one of the better 80s albums I've ever heard. So, it you know, that's a win. <laughs> I Yeah, I'll definitely take that. The... Um, one of the things I love about it is they do a lot of swapping around. So instruments wise uh, and singing. So lost in the supermarket is Mick Jones on vocals uh, for that okay. one. He does a couple of other songs and then uh, guns of Brixton is actually the bass player singing, which is why it sounds like so weird. They, okay. uh, they all kind of like shuffle instruments and I don't know. He can't sing very well. It's fine. I love mm. Joe Strummer's voice. I think that he does a great job because he's yeah. the main singer, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. yeah, so there's kind of 
like the they emerged there's the two schools of like punk rock in the 70s and you have like the ramones and the sex pistols which are all like very like simple melodies and attitude is the main thing and yeah, yeah. that's kind of what makes punk and then the clash are around and they're going actually like the attitude doesn't matter unless you actually know what you're talking about and we can you can write songs still that are interesting and somewhat complicated and still talk yeah. about these issues and talk about them like in an interesting way. Um, hmm. Yeah. That's cool. I respect that. That's great. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a ton to say other than this album is worth everyone's time. London calling is uh, not what you think it is if you haven't listened to it before. And, and if yeah, you have, if yeah, you have definitely. listened to it, you know what I'm talking about basically. No, and I'm glad I did because, so I, I've sent you this song that this was the only Joe Strummer song I knew, which was a, a Minstrel Boy uh, cover by him from the Black Hawk Down soundtrack, which in, I know, whatever. But um, so this, my, my parents were really big into soundtracks when I was growing up. And so I heard this song and my dad was like, oh, this is Joe Strummer from The Clash. And so I didn't really understand much about um, The Clash but when I looked at, you know, uh, like artwork or um, pictures and you're like, oh, right, they were kind of punky, rocky band sort of thing. But this yeah. is a lot more complex and uh, not just one-sided. So, I, yeah, I recommend it um, as a listen because it's, it's a classic. It's something worth listening to and has a lot to say and a lot to, yeah, a lot of really interesting sounds to yeah. offer. So. It's so much fun. Like... Yeah, it is pretty fun. Like you get to the second track and it's like a rockabilly, like blues rock song about like a new car. And you're like, oh, this is like, anyway, I, I love yeah. this album. <laughs> and you have this on, uh, you have this on vinyl, but twice, right? I have two copies of it. I have an original pressing and then a actual modern pressing that I would play rather than nice. the original one. Yeah. You're a real collector, Josh. <laughs> Um, Hopefully my record player worked. So, uh, oh, yeah, that's right. You were just texting me. Oh, telling me. Yeah. Well, I hope it gets working soon. Yeah, um, so when when the spinner landed on classics, I thought it was this album partly because Josh has heard most of the classics that I could probably think of, but <laughs> this is one that he probably hadn't listened to. And it is the original Tubular Bells by Mark Oldfield uh, that was released in 1973. Um, now, this album was quite um, incredible in that Mike Oldfield was 19 when he wrote it mm. um, and he wrote the album side A, like side one and side two of yeah. the LP were recorded in the studio at different times. But essentially, um, he did all the instruments, in, instruments himself. Um, side A had about 274 overdubs and about 2,000 punch-ins of just like, oh, chuck in that little piece here. And so, yeah, side one was recorded over a week and side two was recorded off and on during studio downtime. But essentially he, he started realising he could overdub his own playing on a quarter-inch uh, tape recorder, a two-track that he was given. And he would record like something onto one track and then something onto the second and then he'd like dub them on top of each other and then record on the blank track again and then dub that on top and so he gradually learned about 
like multi-tracking things and layering. And so this album is him layering himself layer upon layer upon layer. And it's mm. uh it's interesting and I wanted Josh to hear the original um because it's uh like I haven't heard the original as much as other sequels, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But what did you think of Tubular Bells? Yeah, uh, you were correct in your assumption that I had not heard this in its entirety. Um, it's not your style. Yeah, <laughs> some people would know uh, a part of Tubular Bells from um, the famous movie The Exorcist, uh, mm-hmm. which I too have knew it from. At least like the first four minutes of the first movement are kind of used in that film, um, and they don't use much of it in the film. Apparently, yeah, it's. It's a bit weird because once you listen to the actual um, album, it's not spooky at all. And it's not really, I don't know. I'm still a bit perplexed as to why it was picked for the movie. And I've done some research on online and it's still just kind of like, oh, the guy liked it. And that's kind of the reason. But anyway. um, Yeah. Yeah. So you said this came out in 1973, which is a big year for the pop music world. Um, Oh, really? Like like you have like Bowie, Stevie Wonder, Stooges, Marvin Gaye, all releasing like really big albums at this time. Um, Okay. And so by like contemporary standards, this like two track, like 50 minute multi-movement instrumental album is pretty wild even in comparison um yeah and even by today's standards it would be very weird to come out i think uh yeah so it's not what would i think that the exorcist did actually boost its listening um but yeah that that helped to kind of get off the ground but it became kind of like a i think gradually became like a cult um sort of following like it's it's a bit odd, but people appreciate it for that. I suppose <laughs> it's, it is more than a bit odd. It's yeah, it's it's yeah, it's kind of like somebody experimentally writing like classical music for the first time, but doing it in a very different way. So you have all these movements that are quite disjointed from one another in some parts. Yeah, um, and it, yeah, it, it's it's kind of hard to describe the thing as a whole because there's no real breakdown other than part one. And part two, unless you like go yeah. to min- minutia detail. So, um, some parts of it are pretty uh, nice to listen to, and some parts of it are like pretty trash. It's kind of it's kind of scuffed in some, some areas. Of the <laughs> well, he just plugs straight in the desk. Like, so uh, some of the tone is just like, Bleh. yeah. So I gu- I guess the the main quality of this being a musical project by Mike Oldfield is the most exemplary part of it and that is something that is um worth acknowledging the kind of the multi-tracking and the nature of the project is quite unique um yeah yeah. even aside from only music but yeah some of the tones oh my goodness whatever pedal that guitar is using needs to be thrown into the ocean and never return (laughs) Because it is one of the worst sounds I've heard on an album in a very long time. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's you. You texted me saying, "How do you even listen to this?" Because you hate guitar tones like that. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I love every part of this, obviously. Yeah, um, but it's. I think you're right. In 
I'm not, I mean, I think it has merit musically, but it is very impressive and very interesting. Like it's kind of like a, a unique piece of writing, right? One 19 year old guy recording all this stuff in a neoclassical sort of way with all these different instruments. It's just kind of like, Oh, it's it's pretty unique. I, I wonder if he knew what he wanted to make as much as the project was finished kind of thing. So it said that he did have it like sketched out, but he was very inspired by all the instruments in the studio and being able to play as whatever he wanted. I actually so, think I enjoy the first half of the second movement the most. Is how before I'll, the caveman, yeah, the, before the caveman, <laughs> before the pipe section, even it's a lot of acoustic guitar interplay, uh-huh. which is quite nice. Um, yeah, yeah. Because um, by the end of the first movement, it's quite bombastic, and you have, I'm assuming, Michael Field as like a disembodied voice, like reading out what's going to play next. And then it plays and it's like, kind of just gets more and more. Um, and it loses a bit of the, the melodic quality for the sake of just adding more instruments. But I think the second half kind of starts actually much mm. nicer than that, than that it finishes. Um, mm. Yeah. We can talk about the caveman. The, the end of the second movement is very strange. <laughs> Um, it's one of my favorite well, the stories. Record label wanted lyrics yeah. or something. Yeah, he's so like, I'll give you lyrics. Some some producer gave him a note saying we need lyrics in this record, and so he was so angry about that he like downed a whole bottle of Jameson, got a taxi to the studio, yelled at the studio producer, and then told him to record him while he like proceeded to scream in the studio for like hours and then took some of that and put it over the back half of the second, um, second song. And so, Mm. um, on first listen, I was just kind of going through like, Oh yeah, instrumental, instrumental. And then this kind of like grunting, yelling, disgusting. noise. (laughs) It really ruins that whole section for me. (laughs) I mean, I was not expecting that. I'll tell you. Yeah. So I think, I don't know. Like, if you like instrumentalism, this album is definitely something that probably revised the movement in a lot of ways in the early 70s. Um, and these tubular bells are very unique. Um, unique yeah. album. <laughs> they're, their, they're their own thing. And, like, you shared with me, there's, like, sequels that have, hmm. um, like, simply... Like similar themes and similar structure in terms of like yeah. um you told me Alan Rickman doing the notation and voicing for the um the instrument breakdown section and you Yeah, he's the MC on Tubular Bells too. Um so you can kind of get a vibe of like these things are uh these tubular bells became more than just a record and some they're just kind of like their own thing. And it was, yeah, and that theme, it's really interesting because this kind of kick-started Mike Oldfield's career and he carried that theme, the the main uh, theme from the beginning of Side One throughout most of his career and you can hear it off and on in various records, obviously in the Tubular Bell records. But, yeah, it's really interesting to see an artist, like, carry a melody through his career and yeah. keep using it in different ways. It's... 
quite fascinating. And I was re-listening to some of his other work because I'm a fan of some of his other music too. Um, and just reflecting on him, I think he's a very good guitarist. And some of his guitar tones are beautiful. They're kind of like um, weeping sort of sounds in my mind. And yeah. he he kind of perfected this as he went along. However, Tubular Bells 1, I wanted to give it to you because it's the one that sounds least 90s or like overproduced. <laughs> I kind of wish he'd kept that production, but with his latest stuff. With yeah. The, I mean, yeah, that's, that'd just, be so much work yeah. to keep doing, though. Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't I know. Th- I think I, I haven't listened to two or three, but I get the impression fine, that number one has the most limitations placed on it by just the nature of the things that he's able to play at the time. So the bass parts hmm. aren't exactly the most interesting. Um, and there's not a lot of drums. I'm assuming he didn't know how to play them at the time. So it's yeah, it's mostly like lead instruments and like mellotrons and that kind of stuff, keyboards. And so hmm. like like you sent me the clip of the live the live clip of them playing, and it's like hmm. six guitar players doing the parts basically. You're like, well, that's kind and of him all playing the, bass. And him playing bass. And so the album really just is there's lots and lots of layering of like a handful of instruments because that's what he could play. Um, yeah, they'll, and they'll... as I mentioned to you, sorry. No, no, go for it. Uh, I found um this uh, vinyl at a thrift store one time, which is Tubular Bells Live, uh, Mike Oldfield Exposed. It's called, um, <laughs> and it's a bad name, but anyway, it's just it's, it's just Tubular Bells Live, and the way they do it live is really groovy. Um, yeah. I'll put that link in the show notes because they do that opening theme. And it's got like drum parts and like a more groovy bass. And it does really feel quite different as he went along. I'm not sure when that recording was from, maybe a few years after it was released. But he he's obviously not been particular about keeping things exactly the same and mm. likes to modify and evolve them a bit. So, yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Anyway, thank you for that. It was definitely an experience. No. And I yeah, shall not forget the caveman in a very long time. <laughs> nice. Well, good. Shall we move on to our honorable mentions? Let's do it. Uh, okay. So uh, firstly, um, it is roughly the uh, five-year anniversary of the coloring book mixtape by Chance the Rapper. Um and as okay. part of that, he's been releasing that movie in theaters, um, kind of like the live show movie. Um, so I've been going through that old mixtape, which I haven't gone through in probably five years. Um, I don't know it. Sorry. Yeah, I it. I, I'm not. I'm not educated enough to speak on the subject, but the kind of like the weird veil between what is a mixtape and what is an album, I find hard to delve between what this release is. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's a very interesting project, is what I will say, and it okay. has kind of the most, some of the most classic examples of Chance's ability to meld gospel music and hip hop together in very mm. beautiful ways, um, with the aid of his backing uh, band with horns and that kind of stuff. So some of the songs on this uh, release are fantastic and we'll i'll put them in the playlist but yeah um, yeah, yeah yeah it's 
And if his Christmas production is anything to go off of, this live film is going to have top tier, um, like sound editing and performances. So it's worth looking at if you can find a copy of it, basically. Yeah, I'll give it a look. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to find it as well. Um, all right, second. Uh, this is a band I found while doing some uh, band camp searching. Um, they're called Los Campesinos. Uh, they are a Welsh indie alternative emo band. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I, I have known about them, but I've never actually listened to them. And so they released something on Bandcamp and I was like, oh, I'll take a look at it. And it's really good. I, it's, it's grown to me a lot in the last little couple of weeks where I've been listening to it. Um, it's, a, it's like a five track uh, release EP of like B-sides, I think, of like their older albums. Um, okay. Yeah, it 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 reminds me in places of, um, Fright and Rabbit records. It kind of has that draw of, um, UK alternative music with really really honest lyricism, which mm-hmm. was marked by Fright and Rabbit to me. So these guys kind of have a similar vein spin on that, but in a different in a different way. Um, yeah, so yeah. I've been yeah really. I don't know. This really surprised me. And I guess I'll have to do more investigating into the band, but it's been really good. Um, and then uh, last but not least, uh, one of my favorite people, Zune. Um, oh. So he has not been completely idle. Uh, he's actually put out a couple covers uh, in the last few months. Um, oh, I miss these. Yeah. One of a Canadian artist called Ellis and I must admit to have not actually listened to uh their album yet it's on my list of things to do but um he's done a cover of one of their songs and uh a cover of a Beck song actually and um really interesting it's not um it's not shoegazy uh though it has some of those elements to it um, yeah, it yeah. seems it seems Zune has got his hand on a cello. I'm assuming because it's much more um, drawn out, slower paced, atmospheric, with some of the shoegaze principles applied around it, which I find beautiful. So these two covers, um, yeah, they're really interesting compositions, and it seems like he's exploring more his ability to kind of put some things together. Um, so always excited to hear from Zune, and it seems like he's doing some interesting things. Nice. That's he kind of reminds me a little bit of a Canadian beer, like, <laughs> you know, very creative, sort of doing lots of different things. Anyway, this just came to mind. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, I will have to check that out. How about you, sir? Uh, I just have a couple, just two. Yeah. I've been listening to a lot of stuff on online to do with, like, um, OP1 stuff, so uh-huh. Teenage Engineering Synthesizer. And I stumbled across this guy on Instagram called Indian Runner or something. Um, And he makes like, you know, Instagram, it's short little videos. And so he's got a lot of these short clips of songs that he's been writing. This is the dude you showed me who does the cover of the, um, uh, I forget his name. You showed me like a, it's like a keyboard cover. Um, Um, he, I've, I've can't remember what, I've sent you a lot of crap. Um, This one. (laughs) This one uh, is, he, 
the first thing I saw that really attracted me to his music was he sampled a Jacob Collier piano yeah. chord progression. Yeah, that, that one. one. That, that was beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And so what he did was he he sampled just Jacob Collier plays and chords on a piano. And then he kind of used those as the basis of a song that he added like drums and singing on top of. And I was like, I must hear more of this. Where can I find, like, <laughs> have you recorded things? And I, I went and listened to his albums and they're close, but evidently he's doing stuff new at the moment, which is like the next step from his studio recordings. Uh, yeah. And so I kind of was a bit like, oh, I, I'm really enjoying listening to these Instagram videos. And like he's done a bunch since and they've got real Bonnie verse sort of vibes. Like his, his vocals uh, are very Justin Vernon, but the songs have more movement. Like there's kind of, it's a bit more definite. And so I even have one of the pieces in my head right now, just going round and round. <laughs> and I'm like waiting for it to kind of move to the next section of the song. But because they're just minute clips, I'm like, ah. So I will chuck a couple of songs I did enjoy from his albums on the playlist. But he, he's someone I'm keeping an eye on because I really like to see him develop into like full albums because... I think we need more people like Bonnie Ver doing a similar sort of thing, but in different ways. Because um, it feels like he's a bit alone in his field of this high falsetto sort of vocals on top of interesting synth stuff. Anyway, yeah. this is my reflection. So, yeah, Indian <laughs> Runner, check, obviously, uh, check him out on Instagram and um, Spotify and Bandcamp and stuff. I say redundant things sometimes. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Um, and lastly, this is a very old album, but I think I just needed to mention it. Um, the Hyperlight Drifter soundtrack by Disasterpiece. You and I both love this soundtrack, Ooh. and I don't think I, we've ever talked about it. But um, it's one that I come back to like probably every couple of weeks because I love listening to it while I work. And this is a very so Disasterpiece is a very interesting musician. He seems to be a bit like on the down low. I can't seem to find much on him online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he does a lot of game soundtracks and movie soundtracks as well. And he seems to have an amazing understanding of soundscaping using synthesizers, but also like acoustic piano. Like he's very, he seems to be a very good pianist uh, and musician. But this Hyperlight Drifter soundtrack, it's a game soundtrack for the game hyperlight drifter which is excellent but it's not like chip tune it's not kind of it feels a bit different and the opening track panacea is like my all-time favorite it has this acoustic piano with these synth synthesized sounds and this crunchy sort of distortion that opening track is like gold for me and i just wanted to kind of pointed out to people in case they've never heard it before yeah the hyperlight drifter soundtrack is really nice it's so uh the the mood of it is so well done and put together mm. um my i love uh a song and it called cult of the zealous it's one of the boss fight pieces and it's so it's not like traditional fight music where it's like big bombastic things it's more like sinister mm. and i don't know if it's the nature of the combat so much well anyway i love both yeah. the game and the soundtrack yeah and it's if you have the time um play both because they go hand in hand in a very very beautiful way as those sound soundtracks should 
Um, I was re last night. I was re-listening to the original um, trailer music. You remember the Baths one? Yeah, that's actually how I found out about Baths as an artist. Was for, I was asked who did the trailer music and the uh, oh right the Kickstarter told me yeah yeah, and that was really interesting. I think people reflected on what if Baths had done this game, and I kind of. I mean, I don't want to miss out on the Disaster Piece soundtrack, but I also want the Baths one too. So <laughs> anyway, I, that just just for people out there, it's, an, it's a game from like 2016. I think you kickstarted it, didn't you, Josh? I did. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, highly recommended. So anyway, that's, that's all me, just two. All right. Uh, thank you for listening to episode 29. We're just about in our 30s, just about to reach, you know, kind of mature conversation level something like that um thank you so much for listening and uh as you know the next episode will be out in three weeks time um now we're in the three week cycle but in the meantime please check out our website where josh has been doing some writing um i probably won't have the time for it but maybe who knows in the future (laughs) and you can also find us on twitter and instagram and facebook we'll be posting more kind of incidental little things we're listening to and stuff that's kind of uh been on our minds so check those places out and we hope you have a great few weeks we'll see you next time see you josh see you mate bye